Welcome to Law on Wheels. I'm KC, your bearded motorcycle, off-road enthusiast, veteran, and your attorney. Each week, we're talking with industry experts, fellow vets, business owners, and we're going to dive into business practices, attorney Q&A, and everything in between. Join us here every week. Good morning. Welcome to the AX2 podcast. I'm broadcasting live from a top secret location inside of a Ford pickup truck, which is mostly where I do my officing. I like being on the road. I like being in the courtroom. That's why I went to law school. It's something I'm extremely passionate about. It's something I live for every day. I, I consider it an absolute privilege. And when you make an impact in a person's, an individual person's life, that's when you get the reward. That's when you get paid. That's when you get the commission. It has less to do with The monetary reward and more about that little emotional check to the heart, right? That deposit into your soul that that feeds you to make you get up the next day and keep fighting and keep pushing. So I had the distinction and the privilege, and I do call it a privilege, to represent a client in a trial. And this one sticks out in my mind among many that that it needs to be the subject of this podcast because this is a big big reason why you know a lot of a lot there's a lot out there in the internet in the world find your why define your why simon sinek any number of authors philosophers writers and when you're privileged to represent the indigent, the poor, right? You are appointed. We've all heard this phrase, right? If you cannot afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you. Now, more often than not, we hear that phrase with regards to the commencement of an interrogation by police officers on the side of a road or when they're suspecting someone of a crime and they've cuffed them and stuffed them. In this situation, it's got that context, but this is after all that stuff on the side of the road at the scene of the crime has occurred, and then they do actually finally get that court-appointed attorney. And that generally means that you're dealing with somebody who doesn't have financial wherewithal. They are indigent, right? A lot of them are destitute, and... They literally have the clothes on their back, maybe the car they're driving, and whatever they're doing that's sustaining their lifestyle. But basically what I'm saying is the folded money they got was in their pockets, and more often than not, it's the kind of money that jingles, not folds. So the fact of the matter is that these clients are appointed to you as their trial counsel. And it's your job to steer them through this criminal prosecution process. 
And if you've ever read the, anything by Steinbeck, you've probably come across the Grapes of Wrath. And there's a character, Tom Joad. And Tom exemplifies a person who stands up for others. A person whose spirit endures because he stands up for the rights of others at a time when they're being singled out and wrongfully targeted. That's not always the case in a criminal prosecution. And in fact, in the eyes of a lot of jurors and judges and prosecutors and even defense attorneys, they have some notion, maybe even a bias, maybe a preconception that these clients are possibly responsible at some level, right? They're, they're responsible at some level for the criminal conduct which they've been charged. They may not be guilty of it, but they may be responsible for it. So that's where this young man and I met. We met at this intersection between you have the right to remain silent, a court-appointed lawyer, and his first hearing in front of a trial judge. And at that point, that process is a reading of the charge against you. And we do that for a particular reason, right? There, there's no secret tribunals with rarest exceptions, super secret CIA courts. I'm not talking about the Patriot Act or anything like that. We're just talking about where the Constitution hits the road, where the rubber hits the road your right to have your charges set out, considered, and issued by a grand jury, and then to have that charge read to you in open court to be asked if you understand the nature of that allegation and to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty. Now, the thing that's critical here. Is that, is that this was the first of about six allegations against this young man, all of which carried a potential range of punishment because of this conduct and the prior conduct of this young individual that he could be facing a life sentence for any one of these. Not just one, but for any one. So conceptually, five or six life sentences. If the state of Texas really, really had an axe to grind and wanted him off the street indefinitely. And the fact of the matter is that in this young man's life, there were some hardships. This is a, a poor kid who grew up black in East Texas in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s in the height of the crack epidemic which surely had to have an impact on his life at a young age. I know this young man had some chances. I know he had some shots, and I know he hit some tripwires, some big ones. Some important people in his life were addicted to drugs and alcohol, 
And some important people in his life weren't. And the important people in his life, all of them, tried to rally around him. And this young man started hitting tripwires. And the fact of the matter is, despite those problems with addiction and alcohol, that this was still a life. It was still worth fighting for. And not only that, but that I was in an ethical obligation appointed to defend him and there were some trip wires of our own right in the middle of all this had a significant injury which sidelined me for weeks and then shortly after that the world shut down global coronavirus pandemic not able to travel non-essential workers the Judicial system was essentially shuttered for a period of time. And more importantly, there was a denial just simply for a public safety reason of free and easy access of communication with, with your clients, especially those who are incarcerated, right? You know, not only social distancing, but making sure that jail facilities didn't have an outbreak of coronavirus, putting deputy sheriffs, jailers, the employees who worked there at great risk, and as importantly, ensuring that there was no exposure to inmates, by inmates coming in, by inmates going out, attorneys coming in, attorneys going out, which could cause an outbreak, you know, throughout the detention facility, which, you know, back in March, April, May of 2020, we were all very, very fearful, and for good reason, because it's not an insignificant virus of what that could look like to a population of, especially a controlled population with nowhere to go and no freedom, no liberty. So back to my client, he'd had some experiences with the criminal justice system. He'd had some not so great experiences with the criminal justice system. He'd been down before, as they say, he'd gone and done some time before. Juvenile, adult, didn't matter. These experiences gave him a pause. They put him on guard that he wasn't going to trust another court-appointed white lawyer who he had no idea their background, their walk of life, their calling, why they're doing what they're doing, or that this court-appointed white lawyer would fight for him, for fight for his liberty. And all of these impediments, the delay from my significant injury, his mistrust of court-appointed attorneys from bad prior experiences, and not saying that those attorneys didn't fight for him, didn't try to get him the best deal they could. In fact, in retrospect, I think they got him some phenomenal deals. I think they fought for him as hard as possible. But no one had ever taken a case to trial for him. And the crime that he was charged with, he was absolutely insistent that it was not his. So how do you get this young man to trust you? How do you get him to believe in you? Well, that's hard. That's hard. You know, trying to find that common ground with somebody who's probably battling, coming down, coming off of drugs and alcohol, and speaking to them rationally, and even in a lot of ways in a cold, unsympathetic manner, because it's not the attorney's job to sugarcoat and make it sweet and nice. 
Our job is to do our level best to make our client understand that when the state of Texas has its unlimited financial resources targeted solely on you, how big a hill that is to overcome. And the only other time I've ever seen a hill bigger than that is when the United States government has solely targeted an individual client. The amount of pressure that that client feels from five or six felony charges, any one of which could could render a life sentence, is crushing to your soul. And then you're forced into a relationship that you have to form because someone said so. Somebody in the government said so. Somebody who works for the state of Texas, a duly impaneled elected judge in the state of Texas has appointed you an attorney and then all of a sudden you're supposed to trust this individual come on judge let's get real you know this is why clients feel like they're talking to a locomotive this is why clients feel like they're getting railroaded because the the locomotive seems to be in charge and then on top of that they've had these prior investments in the criminal justice system, right or wrong, they have made prior investments in the criminal justice system more often as a defendant and less often as a taxpayer. But as the defendant and these experiences leave them with a sour taste in their mouth, they have no trust in the court-appointed attorney system. They don't have enough money to make bail. They don't have enough money to hire an attorney of their choosing. So they are stuck with you and you have to overcome all of these impediments and all of these disconnects to find some common ground especially when you're putting 12 in the box when you're putting 12 in the box to sit in judgment of their life so here's what's awesome about that here's what's awesome about that is that you get to communicate with, if you're seating a jury of 12, you're going to have somewhere between 40 and 60 candidates, and you get to talk to them about the most important things that our founders gave us, and that is our constitutional right to a jury trial. Our constitutional right to a jury trial is preserved not one, but three times in our constitution of these united states of america that's how important it was to our founders this is not something you should consider giving or throwing away lightly you should not contract it away in an employment agreement uh, a contract with a builder designer etc these are critical rights that our founders gave us and our jury system while not perfect is the closest thing to justice that our entire, going all the way back, our, the legacy of the entire species of humanity is putting the right to vote in the hands of 12 citizens instead of the government. That's one thing our founders made sure that we had forever. And we're so blessed to have it. So what we've covered here in this part one is this client, this young man, who's in this position of distrust. You, you got no reason to trust me. got no reason to believe in me. And 
Frankly, I don't really believe in him. You know, I'm struggling to find the reasons to believe in, in somebody who's been labeled as a troublemaker and is troublesome, is a difficult person to work with and represent. And you've got to balance that with, is this person imposing on this relationship the difficulties and the mistrust and the hurt and the hard feelings and nobody will stand up for him from before? Or is there just a disconnect with, I know what I did and I am for damn sure going to die on this hill because I'm going to make the state fight me all the way down, especially if it's lifetimes five, right? Just think about that. Think about the tremendous amount of pressure that this young man was under. Life times five, right? Not concurrent, stat. We're going to get this conviction, and then we're going to try the next four till we have enough life sentences that we're going to make sure we don't see your troublemaker butt in this town anymore. That's pressure that most people cannot even fathom. In fact, I struggle with it. You know, when you're thinking about a life sentence, is 40 years before you're eligible parole. You ain't got it, no matter how young you are, you ain't got enough years, right? Times five, 40 times five, 200 years, not even, not even. And then when you stack like that, you got to do all of the first one and half of the second one before you're eligible for, for parole. So 60, you got to do 60 before you, you don't have enough years. You just don't have enough years. There's no life left at the end of it. And that's why they call it life, right? Because it, it takes everything. So the fact of the matter is, this is part one of this podcast, and we're telling a story, a true crime story, about an individual that I had the privilege to represent, about a young man that I have the privilege to represent, that I have the privilege to have gone into battle for and with, and come out the other side, the better. It taught me some valuable lessons. It taught him some valuable lessons. More to come on the next part of this episode on the AX2 Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I love you guys. I'll see you on the road.